Scripture reading comes from the book of Hosea, chapter 11, verses 1 through 11. Today we'll be reading the NRSV version. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. The more I called them, the more they went from me. They kept sacrificing to Baals and offering incense to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up in my arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of human kindness, with, band, with bands of love. I was to them like those who lift infants to their cheeks. I bent down to them and fed them. They shall return to the land of Egypt, and Assyria shall be their king, but they have refu- because they have refused to return to me. The sword rages in their cities. It consumes their oracle priests and devours because of their schemes. My people are bent on turning away from me to the most high they call, but he does not raise them up at all. How can I give... You up, Ephraim. How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my fierce anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and no mortal, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. They shall go after the Lord who roars like a lion. When he roars, his children shall come trembling from the west. They shall come trembling like birds from Egypt and like doves from the land of Assyria, and I will return them to their homes, says the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. The Lord be with you. Uh, Please pray with me. Gracious God, we thank you for this day that you have made. Now we ask once again that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts together might be pleasing to you, O Lord, our God, our rock, our redeemer. Amen. The book of Hosea opens with these words. The word of the Lord which came to Hosea, the son of Barry, during the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and during the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. The names of these kings place Hosea toward the end of the 8th century BCE, which is the final decades of the northern kingdom of Israel, which will eventually fall completely to the Assyrian Empire. And so Hosea is ministering and prophesying in a time of severe economic, social, and political upheaval and instability to a disheartened and divided people. You're probably familiar, if you're familiar at all with the story of Hosea, because of the story of his marriage to Gomer, uh, which is found in the first three chapters of this book. Their marriage of infidelity was a real-life, lived-out parable illustrating the relationship between a faithful God and an unfaithful Israel. And then seven chapters of judgment and accusations against Israel follow and culminates in the reading you just heard. If you've never heard this passage before, some of you may have found it quite surprising. It's an entirely unique passage in all of Scripture. 
it's a soliloquy where we get to hear God's inner dialogue. We get to listen in on God's impassioned and anguished cry for his people. One scholar has noted, we penetrate deeper into the heart of God and the mind of God here than anywhere else in the entire Old Testament. And the chapter begins with God recalling the years, the early years of his relationship with his people, Israel. And he remembers this time with deep affection. God says, I loved him. I called my son. I taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up in my arms. I healed them. I led them with cords of human kindness. I was like those who lift up infants to their cheeks. I bent down to them and fed them. This parent-child metaphor points to tenderness, to protective care, and a long shared history. It's what any parent might recall. While a child will have no memories of these early years, a parent will cherish these moments of teaching their child to walk, taking them up in their arms, snuggling their infants to their cheeks, And we are invited here now to imagine a God who bends down to nourish us. But then in verse 5, the tone shifts. Like a rebellious teenager, despite all that God has done for them, the people of Israel have turned away from God. And because of that, God says that the people will reap the consequences of their behavior. The sword and violence will rage in their cities and further oppression, exile, and subjugation under the king of Assyria is foretold. But this judgment of exile is not spoken from a place of anger or vindictiveness. Rather, it is the acknowledgement of a heartbroken parent who sees the consequences of his child's bad choices. Like any parent, God here shares this this anguish of watching his child choosing a path of self-destruction after years of warning and pleading. And then in verse 8, we have another tonal shift. In light of this impending destruction, God asks himself a series of four questions. How can I give you up Oh, Ephraim. uh, Ephraim is another word for Israel. How can I surrender you, oh Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? And these are the names of two cities that were destroyed along with the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. God knows that the just consequences of rebellion that await Israel, but God, in this poignant cry, refuses to give up his child. I cannot give you up, oh Ephraim. I cannot surrender you, O Israel. I cannot make you like Adma. I can't treat you like Zeboim. And God says, my heart is turned over within me. All my compassions are kindled. God resolves not to give up his people. God says, my heart is is turned. It's, It's overturned. It's churning. It's recoiling. And the term that is used here to describe the turning of God's heart is the same word that was used to describe the overturning of the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. 
And so this word links God's emotions in this moment to God's previous actions. But instead of overturning the cities of Israel as they justly deserve, God instead chooses to overturn his own heart and find another way. Last week we saw in the story of Jonah what I call the relentance of God, of how God turned away from judgment, how God went from trying to enforce judgment to instead embracing compassion. And it's the same here today in Hosea. God once more turns. Like the churning of the sea, we see the conflicting emotions of God colliding with the character of God and his waves of tender mercy crashing against the breakers of his terrible wrath. And then this calm resolve, I will not execute my fierce anger. I will not destroy Ephraim again. God displaces all the heat of his righteous anger in the warmth of his parental compassion. Now, I know this is something that every parent has experienced. Actually, I think anyone who has had any meaningful relationship has experienced this. You know how swiftly your emotions can turn from tenderness to anger to anguish and back to tenderness once again. Just the other day, I was telling someone and recalling about a time uh, when um, one of my kids, Peter, um, <laughs> when he got lost when he was just five years old. Uh, we were down in Baltimore visiting uh, uh, Kyung's family. And uh, he and his cousin, uh, his five-year-old cousin Johnny, the two of them uh, went to the backyard to play. And all of his parents, uh, aunts and uncles, you know, we were all young parents. We were all tired. So just, we just left them alone for a while. But at some point, uh, I don't know how long later, uh, I looked back and I couldn't see them. And so I went to look and they weren't there. So I thought, well, maybe they went to the front yard. So I went to the front yard and looked around in the front yard. Uh, they weren't there. And so I thought, oh, maybe they're playing inside. So I looked around the house and then I asked the other adults there, hey, has anyone seen Peter or Johnny? Uh, and we realized all of us thought that one of the other parents was keeping an eye on them and none of us had. And so then all of us started uh, fanning out into the streets. We're all looking, we're shouting their names and, and we hear nothing, we see nothing. Uh, I'm, I'm running up and down the, the, the streets. I'm, I'm talking to strangers. You know, have you seen two, two five-year-old boys walking? Like, we're just going nuts, right? I get in the car, I start driving around. I go to the local park. I'm, I'm wondering, like, these terrible thoughts are going through my mind. You know, maybe they fell, they got injured. I go to the local swimming pool, maybe they fell in, right? I'm having just all kinds of uh, panic as I'm thinking about all these possibilities. And so then we thought, you know, we, we need to call the police right now. So just as we're about to call the police, one of the neighbors shouts to us, hey, I found them. Hey, I found them. And, and we turn and look and we see this, uh, this uh, elderly lady and she's got both boys, one hand in each hand, and, and, and she's walking toward us. And, and the boys have no idea what's been happening, of course. And so we, we run to them and we're, we're looking them over to make sure they're okay. And... Um, and we like, where were you? What happened? And Peter calmly says to us, Johnny and I went looking for some flowers for mom. Now, later, much, much, like much, much later, his mother did say they were beautiful flowers. 
But in that moment, in that moment, as a parent, I mean, I, I went through every emotion. I was terrified. I was angry. I was relieved. And when I saw Peter, I wanted to both like just strangle him and scream at him. And at the same time, just, just embrace him and never let go. I think that, that's not the only time that happened, by the way. But that's what it is to be in a parent-child relationship, right? And that's what it is to be in any kind of relationship. And I think Hosea understood this as well. He knows the emotional turbulence of being a parent. His marriage was a tumultuous and scandalous mess. It's likely that he spent a great part of his life being a single parent to three kids, like me, two boys and a daughter, a daughter in between. And, you know, if we do some educated guessing here, at the time that these words are written, his three kids are probably teenagers. I imagine they were like teenagers. I imagine that there were days when things looked bad. And God tells Hosea, yeah, Israel will be lost. They will be temporarily lost in exile. They will reap the consequences of their disobedience. God's compassion for his people does not eliminate, does not negate the need for human repentance. But God also lets Hosea know that the churning of God's heart means that this exile and subjugation under the Assyrians will only be temporary. It is not the last word. Judgment is not the last word. The promise that God makes is that the people of Israel will walk once again after the Lord and God will roar like a lion. Indeed, he will roar and his sons will come trembling from the west. They will come trembling like birds from Egypt and like doves from the land of Assyria. And I will settle them in their houses, declares the Lord. In other words, I will bring my people home once again. That's the promise. I want to just make this uh, one reflection with you today. You know, the image of God that is presented to us here is largely that of a compassionate parent and the inner turmoil that a parent goes through. And here we are speaking in metaphors. And it may be that all language about God is necessarily metaphor. And so we have to tread carefully. John Calvin, for example, speaks of this particular metaphor as illustrative of God's self-emptying and God's condescension. That is simply a way of describing God's accommodation for us. He writes, as nurses commonly do with infants, God is wont in a measure to lisp in speaking to us. God is wont in a measure to lisp in speaking to us. Just like when we talk to children, we use a kind of a different language, right? And we, and we use like made up words like gaga, goo goo, or whatever we say to the tiniest ones. So in this metaphor, in this language, God is accommodating to what we are able to comprehend. And so it's a good warning about how far we want to push any particular metaphor in speaking about God. It's like what C.S. Lewis said in one of his uh, Chronicles of Narnia stories. 
in the in the story, uh, the the horse and his the boy, the horse and his boy, um, a frightened Shasta, the boy, asks this giant sort of voice that he's been walking with, and he has no idea what this is. He asks, "Are you a giant?" Not realizing that this is Aslan, the great lion, and Aslan replies, "You might call me a giant." but I am not like the creatures you call giants. I know that for most of us here today, that the metaphor that most resonates when we talk about God is that of God the Father. Jesus himself taught us to pray, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And repeatedly, Jesus talked about our heavenly Father and his heavenly Father. And the church picked up on this Right away. And the Apostle Paul, for example, tells us, because you are children, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts so that we can cry out, Abba, Father. God, as father, as metaphor, is so common in the New Testament and so ingrained into our imaginations in the churches that we've grown up in that it's very easy for us to forget that until Jesus popularized it, it was very uncommon. God as Father is explicitly stated in the Old Testament only a handful of times. I was actually a little surprised this past week uh, in preparing for this at how many biblical scholars and commentators assume and write and attribute the words that we heard today to God the Father, even though it's not stated that this is God the Father. God's self-reflection are here spoken in the first person without reference to gender. This is a parent-child relationship that God speaks of or a parent-son. And so without any sort of preconceived notions of God as father, I want you to just do this with me. Just, Just close your eyes for a moment and listen again to what God says. God says, I taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up in my arms. I healed them. I led them with cords of human kindness. I was to them like those who lift infants to their cheeks. I bent down to them and fed them. Open your eyes. What did you hear? Did you hear the voice of a father or a mother? Aren't those words that could be spoken easily by either one? Objectively speaking, we could even say that the kinds of actions that are spoken here are more what we would traditionally ascribe to mothers than to fathers. Right? So this is God speaking as a parent. Now, I think we have to talk about father because Parent just seems so impersonal and cold, so, so there is a need, I think. It's, it's better to say father. There is nothing wrong with calling God father. We are encouraged to do so, but as C.S. Lewis suggests, we can call God, God father. God invites us to do that. You may call me father, but we have to remember that God also says, but I am not like the creatures you call father. Hosea reminds us that we should be careful not to exclude what we might think of as sort of 
uh, traditionally feminine characterizations of a parent, and that God must not be idolized as either male or female. God is God beyond these kinds of descriptors that we sometimes ingrain into our minds. In fact, while God's self-reflection is likened to parental tenderness, God's compassion is ultimately rooted in something much more fundamental. God says, I will not execute my fierce anger. I will not destroy Ephraim. And the reason God gives for this is because I am God. I am not mortal. I am the Holy One in your midst and I will not come in wrath. God says, I am God. I am beyond metaphors. I am the holy one in your midst. To be holy means God is just totally other. Totally other. There is always a limit to human love, to human determination, to even the best of human intentions of the most loving people we might know. But even in our best efforts, you know that there are occasions where we have reacted badly after losing our temper. Where we have created unresolved and perhaps unresolvable chaos. We have all broken relationships that we have no intention or hope of resolving. But God is not like us. God is God. And so God says, in spite of the disobedience of Israel, I will not come in wrath. Yes, there will be punishment. There will be consequences. There will be exile. But God declares, I will not react in a state of uncontrolled anger as you might. And I promise that I will bring you home. Notice that God's first word is love. I loved him. I loved him. And everything flows. Everything flows from that position. I know that there is an ongoing misperception that has been going on for two millennia. That the God of the Old Testament is this sort of uh, judgmental, wrathful God and that the God of the New Testament, the God of Jesus, is this you know, loving and gracious God. It's almost like two, two separate gods. And for 2,000 years, you know, people have rejected God based on the Old Testament God, supposedly this, this, this God that they describe. But anyone who ascribes to that, to think upon God as some sort of violent, vindictive warrior ready to you know, just strike someone down, Texts like Jonah last week and Hosea today and others, it offers a sharp rebuke of our mistaken perceptions of what God is like. Now, over the years, I, I know that I've had far too many conversations with people who had this, this just the wrong idea about what God is like. And people who suffered needlessly because of this misconception about God as this some sort of uh, just wrathful being ready to just strike you down into oblivion for the slightest mistake. Too many people have dismissed or mocked or rejected God, not based on the readings of Scripture, 
But based on these misrepresentations of God, God presented as caricature based on poor Christian witness rather than on what God speaks for himself. And God says in Jesus, I am speaking for myself. And the simple truth is that people do not know God. People do not know God, nor do they take the time to discover this God of the scriptures. And in fact, this is one of the, the complaints that comes through in the book of Hosea. Chapter 4, verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord, people. For the Lord has an indictment against the inhabitants of the land. There is no faithfulness or loyalty and no knowledge of God in the land. There is no knowledge of God in the land. Chapter 6, verse 6. For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. God saying, like, if you knew me, you would know my heart is not for burnt offerings. It is not for death and judgment. It is for steadfast loyalty and compassion. That is what I desire. It's not just the Ninevites and the Assyrians who did not know God. It's God's own people. You know, a survey came out recently, a survey that gets conducted every two years among American evangelical Christians. Uh, as a whole, American evangelicals pride themselves as holding on to more traditional Christian doctrines. And the survey confirmed this. On many questions of uh, Christian doctrine, they held orthodox beliefs. For example, over 90% were in agreement with statements such as that God is perfect, that God exists in three persons, uh, that Jesus uh, rose uh, bodily uh, in resurrection, and that people are saved by faith and not by works. Yet the same group of people, at the very same time, they also held very unorthodox views, especially when it comes to Jesus. 56% said that Jesus is not the only way to God. 43% said that Jesus is not God. And 73%, this one really got to me, this one really shocked me, 73% said that God created Jesus. They don't know Jesus. And therefore, they don't know God. If Jesus is a mere creation of God, like the rest of us, if God is, if Jesus is not God, then all of this just collapses because Jesus is a liar claiming to be what he's not. The scriptures testify falsely to what Jesus is not. And we certainly should not be worshiping Jesus if that's all he was. Any historically meaningful Christianity rests on this profession that Jesus is the word of God who was with God in the beginning, and who is God. And as much as people may want to shape Jesus into something else, into a teacher or, or something like that, you can't do that, not if you're going to be faithful to the scriptures and to history. That is not the claim that Jesus made. That is not the witness of the scriptures. And that is not what the Christian faith is. And here God reminds us patiently once more, of, what, of who he is and what he is like. That God's love for his people is greater than our sins.
that God's relationship with the world is not merely one of justice, but one of affection, a relentant affection. That this God is not who is overcome by uncontrollable anger, but one who resolves not to respond in momentary anger. This God is like the most loving parent that we can imagine and at the same time is not like those whom we call father and mother. This God is worth knowing and worth loving. And we can love because he first loved us. And this God calls us to return and promises to return us home. And God declares, I am God. I am no mortal. The Holy One in your midst and I will not come in wrath. Believe the good news and be at peace. Please pray with me. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the revelation of how you have revealed yourself to us. God, help us to, to know you, to truly know you, because in that knowing is our life. Help us to know Jesus, in whom you spoke for yourself, in whom is all that is divine. And God, in that knowing, help us to trust your word and help us to live our lives in imitation of that compassion. Turn our hearts in compassion. We thank you and we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.